in 2013, uh, this may or may not be common knowledge or even significant, <laughs> but uh, Josh and I actually plan out the years preaching, particularly ahead of time, a whole year. Uh, we don't just say, hey, what do you want to do this week? Uh, we, we know what we're doing for the entire year. So 2013, we uh, planned out um, the, um, the uh, series of Road to Emmaus, and um, we went through that, and the goal of that was to provide a panoramic view of uh, the scripture, because the previous year we preached through Luke, and Jesus said, all of the scripture is about me. So we said, hey, that's, that's really significant. So let's spend a year working our way through the big picture of the scripture, pass that, give that panoramic view of the scripture uh, as it points to Jesus. So it was, it was, it was big, it was broad, it was very uh, panoramic, I guess is the best way to explain it. But we wanted to point that all the scripture points to Christ. This year, 2013, we're going to take a very different tack. It's a very different emphasis. Instead of being very panoramic, it's actually going to be extremely personal. We're going to talk this year, the emphasis of our year this year is what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Us, here, now, in our day, our age, as persons, as families, as a church. What does it look like for us to be Christians, to be disciples, to be followers of Christ now. And we're going to not just have one uh, series, if you will, for the year. It's actually three series or three aspects of preaching or perspectives that are going to run uh, intermingled with each other. So there will be a bit of a variety as we go through the year. We're going to start off, uh, for example, we're going to start off talking about our discipleship pathways that was developed for us to understand. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? If we're going to follow Christ, what is the pathway we're going to follow? And that's what it is. So we're going to begin by unpacking a little bit of what it means to have the pathways discipleship. And if you're not familiar with that, you will be. It comes with diagrams and all sorts of things, okay? Um, but then the second part of that is, at, in, beginning in March, we're going we're gonna, to, as we sort of get the ball rolling in January and February with Pathways, uh, un unpacking that, we're then going to turn our attention to the book of Ephesians. And we're going to preach through, for a number of months, the book of Ephesians, because in the book of Ephesians, it parallels, in many respects, Pathways, in that the first half of the book, Jesus, uh, Paul unpacks what does it mean to be united to Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? What has Christ done for us? And then the second half of the book, the uh, second three chapters, he then unpacks, in light of that, how do we live now as Christians, as disciples, as a church in our day and age, and how do we apply that? How do we walk in the truth of the gospel? So we're going to turn our attentions to Ephesians and, and then unpack that. And then towards the... Um, the third third of the year, we're going to say, okay, if part of our mission is to draw to Christ and develop a community and deploy into culture, what, what is that culture we're deploying into? Again, thinking of it as individuals, as families, as a church. So we're going to unpack some issues, cultural things that we have. For example, we're going to talk about truth in an age of intolerant tolerance. We're going to talk about what is marriage in an age of uh, when it's, and it's supposed to be open and affirming culture. What does it mean to be very specific about Christ being the only way to God in a culture that's pluralistic and postmodern? All these things. And we're actually going to be, a little later in the year, asking for your issues. What are the things that are burning in your heart? You say, you know what? For me to be an effective Christian in our culture, I need to understand this particular thing a little bit more. And we will uh, try to address those things. So that's coming up. So that's where we're going.
And uh, so today we're starting, it's the theme, we don't have fancy video, we don't have all the other graphics, that, at least yet, that we're going to work through, but the emphasis is, especially for the first couple uh, weeks, is what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And we're going to begin today by asking that question. What do you need to know in order to follow Jesus? What, what do we need to know in order to follow Jesus? You should have a handout. We're going to go through that. But before we get to that, I want to uh, read the passage of Scripture. Will you stand with me and reread Luke 9? We ask you to stand in, in honor of, of reading God's Word. I'm going to be reading Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27 and then verses 57 through 62. Hear the word of the Lord. Now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they said, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that uh, one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet to another he Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow, looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You may be seated. Today we're going to look at five uh, answers to the question, what is it, um, what do you have to know in order to follow Jesus? And if you're not a Christian here today, And we're going through these five things. I just want to draw your attention, first of all, to the first two. The first two are the ones everybody needs to wrestle with first. Need to understand first. The the last three build on those, but if you don't understand the first two as we go through them, then the the other three won't make sense. Also, even if you are, consider yourself a follower of Christ, a Christian, a disciple of Christ, and you are trying to share the gospel, you're trying to explain to somebody, a co-worker, a friend, a family member, somebody else, you're trying to explain to them what does it mean to be a follower of Christ, I recommend you again focus on the first two before you worry about dealing with the other three with them. The first one, to, follow, to be a follower of Jesus, you need to be clear who Jesus is. 
You need to be clear who Jesus is. If we're going to follow Jesus, who is this Jesus? We see, read this in verses 18. Now it happened that, he was long, uh, that he was praying alone. His disciples were with him. In other words, he wasn't with all the crowds. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they said, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked the very important question, personal question. Okay, that's all what the crowds say. What do you, who do you say that I am? Who do you say, individually, to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ of God. Who is Jesus is the most fundamental question. If we're going to, again, follow Jesus, who, who is this guy? Is he some ascetic, peculiar person like John the Baptist? Some people thought so. Was he some kind of hero of spiritual power like Elijah? Some people thought so. Uh, is he someone who speaks for God uh, like a lot of other people, like a lot of other people who call them prophets? like some of the people thought he was? Is he some spiritual good luck charm or magic genie used to satisfy our wishes? Is he a preferred option in finding God in a world of many options? But I just think I'll go with Jesus. Is that who Jesus is? Is that who Jesus is to you? You need to answer the question and be clear, who is Jesus? Peter gives us an answer. It's short, it's concise, and it's accurate. And it eliminates a lot of the other answers. He says, you are the Christ of God. The Christ. Not a Christ. Not one of the options. You are the Christ. Christ is not, by the way, Jesus' last name. It is a title. It means Lord, Savior, Anointed, Messiah. It carries with it a whole bunch of meaning. You are the Savior, the one and only Savior. There is one true God and there is one true Savior, and you are Him. All those other things may describe a facet of who you are, but that's not the essence of who you are. You are the Christ. Jesus is not an option among many options we have in our culture, spiritual or finding God. The Bible tells us there, there are no options. There's only one way. And either you are clear on that way or you're not. There's not multiple choice uh, options to do that. Jesus himself said in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Pretty explicit, pretty clear. Paul says to Timothy, there is one God, And there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Again, there is only one God, and we are a broken relationship with him, and the only way to get together with him is one way, through Jesus. In our pluralistic, postmodern culture, the exclusiveness of Jesus is unacceptable. It's just unacceptable to be that narrow. We have had people leave Red Sea, because the teachers, preachers, elders of Red Sea, not just Josh and I, but also with Sean and stuff here, have been explicit about who Jesus is. And they say, nah, I want some other options. But for those who follow Jesus, who are going to be followers of Jesus, they need to be clear. There are no other options. To be a follower of Jesus, you need to be clear who Jesus is. But you also need to be clear, secondly, of why he has come. Why, why he has come. 
Why Jesus came, I should say. Be clear why Jesus came. And again, what was the purpose of his coming on earth? To be a good example? To be some kind of spiritual guru? To give, impart deep spiritual teachings like Allah and Buddha and other spiritual leaders? Is that, is that why he came? No, the scripture is clear. In fact, in this verses 21 and 22, Jesus is telling them ahead of time, even before it's happened, I'm heading a direction, my life here is for purpose. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day raised. The death of Jesus is not a tragedy because circumstances spun out of control. Jesus is not a martyr who died for a cause. It's not an unfortunate thing that Jesus died, like some people in the world would say. We wished he had stayed around longer. We wished he had written a book. Then we could really have that spiritual insight of Jesus. No, Jesus didn't come for that. He came for a specific reason, and that is to die. And it's not an accident. where The Bible tells us that Jesus was delivered up uh, to the people to be crucified by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned this before he even created the world. Jesus said, I I came not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew through his whole life why he came. Not to be served as the king, but he's here to serve, and specifically to give his life as a ransom, to buy us back from the penalty of sin. Paul said that he delivered over to us what was of first importance, that Christ died uh, for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. He was ra- buried and then raised again accordance with the Scriptures. That in accordance with the Scriptures part is what we looked at all of last year. But what was that all about? That was all about Christ coming and dying and being buried and raised again. Paul said, For our sake the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, the death of Christ, not only do we have the penalty of sin paid for, but God transfers to us his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness. So when the Father looks at us as we responded to Christ, he sees the goodness of Christ in us. That's just an awesome thing. That's why Jesus came. John Piper, a number of years ago, wrote a book called 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. And it's just a short little devotional, two pages at a time, where he just looks at verses that specifically say, Jesus came to die for this reason. And the reason I say that is I just want to emphasize, he just lists, he just, he just listed scriptures and then, and then you know, just made a little devotional reading about each one. 50 reasons. Things he, to absorb the wrath of God to uh, learn obedience, to be resurrected from the dead, to display to us God's love, to display for us his own love, to cancel the legal demands of the law, to ransom us back, to forgive our sins, to provide justification, to um, um, make us holy, blameless, and perfect, to clear our conscience, to take away any condemnation. I I can go on and on for 50 things. Now, the reason I'm listening to that is that the, there is a lot of benefits. There's a lot of consequences. There's a lot of truth tied in to Christ's death on the cross. But there are no benefits, there are no consequences if there's no death. If there's no death, burial, and resurrection, all the things, all the benefits we like talking about and should talk about are mute because they weren't obtained. Christ died for those reasons. The focal point of Jesus' life and ministry is his death and resurrection. The epicenter of all those benefits is his death and resurrection. That's why we need to remind ourselves 
of, of this often. This is one of the reasons, one of the, a number of reasons, why we take communion every week, to remind ourselves of his death and resurrection. Jesus died for our sins. That is why Jesus came. And if you've been part of Red Sea for any length of time, then the first two should be no surprise. I sure hope it's no surprise. That should be old news to you, I would hope. But Jesus goes on. To be a follower, you need to be clear who Jesus is, why Jesus came, and how Jesus came. And how Jesus came. He says in verse 22, we've already seen that, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus is speaking about what's going to happen. He's not, this is not after the fact for him. Like, hey, this is what happened. He knowingly willingly decided that he was going to head this direction that included suffering and rejection and the pain of death, and he did it because he was there to do so. Notice how he describes this. Don't go too quickly past. He knew ahead of time what that pathway for him entailed. He knew how he came. Suffering many things. He knew he had to suffer. He knew he'd be rejected He'd be rejected by the very people who should be welcoming him. He was rejected. He was even put to a death, a horrible death. But we're also told that after that he was raised from the dead. But the the truth is, resurrection power and demonstration comes after the suffering, after the resurrection, and after the death. This is how Jesus was and is treated by many people who he came to serve. And, should, and, and we should, as followers of Christ, should not expect anything much different. If we're following Jesus, and this is the road he took, we should not be surprised if suffering and rejection, and sometimes, in some people, in some places, even death, are the path that we have to take. That's why he said that. This is how he is. We're told in Philippians, Paul unpacks a great passage that describes Jesus in chapter 2, and he says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself and took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is how Jesus came. Even though he was in heaven in perfect community with the Father, the Father said, you need to go to earth to give your life as a ransom. Jesus said, I will go. And he came. And he gave up a lot of the things that we, we, the glory, the majesty of all that, it's just even hard for us to understand. But he willingly gave that up, took on our human form, lived that life, and it says there that he even humbled himself. God humbled himself. He wasn't humbled. He humbled himself even to the point of obedience, even to the point of obedience of dying for the people who rejected him. That's how Jesus came. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. The followers of Jesus come to serve, not to be served. That's what it means. If Jesus' life and accomplishments our demonstration of his submission, his humility, obedience, service, and sacrifice, should we expect that those following him would require 
any less. To be a follower of Jesus, you need to be clear who Jesus is, why Jesus came, how Jesus came, and what Jesus expects. If you're going to be a follower, you need to be clear what Jesus expects. We read this particularly in verse 23. He says, And he said to to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Notice how this is open-ended in the sense of it's abroad. He said, he said, to all, if anyone. This is not just an exclusive call to his 12 disciples. This is not a call to some elite group of people who are going to follow him, some kind of spiritual commandos. This is his call to everyone and anyone who would come after him. This verse is not for unique people. It's for everyone who calls on the name of Christ. And he said in here, um, and he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would pursue and go where I'm going, if you're going to be my disciple or follower, this is what it takes. And where did Jesus say he was going? Where did he say he was going? The verse begins, and he said to all, if you come after me. Where did he just say that he was going? Well, the previous verse, Jesus said, this is where I'm going. He said, I'm going to suffer many things, rejected by the elders and the scribes and the priests, and be killed and be raised on the third day. If anybody wants to come with me, this is what it takes. This is what it means to be a follower, because that's how, where I go, that's how I go. If you want to follow, this is what it takes. What does it look like? He gives us three expectations. Three, deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, we're going to look at these just very briefly, but follow me, I'm going to start with there, because follow me, in a grammatical sense, is the more broad word. It's the main verb of that sentence. It's, he's saying, this is follow me, and the other two things of denying ourselves and taking up our cross describe in the nuts and bolts what it means to follow Jesus. So he's saying, deny yourself, take up your cross. But what you're really doing is following me. That following, that there's a leader who directs, and then there are followers who respond to his direction. Uh, Following means continual, ongoing action. Following is uh, to move in the same direction as the one you are following. It doesn't mean you get to go off any direction you want. To follow someone, literally or figuratively with Jesus, means where he's going Where he wants us to go, we go. There's movement. There's progress. It's to conform to, comply with, and act in accordance with. To follow Jesus means that word that we really don't like talking about, obey. It means obeying Jesus. To follow Jesus is to be attentive to where Jesus is going and what he is doing. To follow Jesus is to be attentive where he he wants us to go and what he wants us to do. There is, there is a reorientation of our life and focus on Jesus. Now, this is not simply a decision for Jesus. In our culture, in the Christian culture, we sometimes talk about following Jesus. As, hey, do you follow Jesus? Oh, yeah. You know, ten years ago, I made a decision for Jesus. That, that's not what he's talking about. A little, little riddle for you here. Three, lo- three frogs sitting on a log. One decides to jump in the water. How many frogs are left on the log? Three. 
He decided to jump in the water. Deciding something doesn't mean you do it. Right? Right. We think deciding means it's a done deal. It's not a done deal until you actually do the action. Deciding to follow Christ is not following Christ. If there's no progress, if there's no movement, if there's no obedience to where he's taken us, deciding all you want doesn't change anything. We're going to actually unpack that in greater depth next week. What does it look like to follow Jesus? The values and decisions of self-denial and daily cross-bearing are to be characteristics of our continually following Jesus. Well, what does it mean to deny ourselves? You know, what, what does it mean to, if he denies himself, what does it mean? As followers of Jesus, if we think and unpack, I'm going to save you a lot of the analysis. If we want to unpack what it means to de, the, of self-denial, what it means to deny ourselves, the best example of it is saving faith. It's saving faith in Jesus. It's a primary reference point for us. When we talk about self-denial, we have to be very careful that we think a lot of it as self-inflicting pain or just asceticism of doing without. And the more I do without, the more God is happy with me. That's, that's not the essence of this. He is saying, it's just like with saving faith, we cannot save ourselves but are completely dependent on Jesus to do that, to get us right with God. That's self-denial. I can't do it. There's no way. I need Jesus to do it. That's, that's what it looks like to deny yourself. The essence of saving faith is complete trust in the work of Jesus and not ourselves. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. That's a description of self-denial. It's not my own doing to come to Christ. I respond in faith to what he has done. I am not going to be able to boast at all that I came to God. I'm going to boast for eternity that he brought me to himself. That is self-denial. Now, salvation does not only come, and the important part of understanding that is when we talk about self-denial and saving faith, salvation does not come on our terms, our merits, our conditions. And therefore, nor does, nor does following Jesus. Our following Jesus is not based on our terms, our merits, our conditions. They're based on his. That's self-denial. The self-denial of saving faith continues of the self-denial of following faith. The self-denial of saving faith continues in the self-denial of saving faith. We walk and trust that God is continually to working in us. He's continually bringing us to himself. His provision for sin is a done deal. I, I don't get to take that back. I don't get to, now that I'm saved and I'm, I'm part of a Christian, I get to do, do it my way. Self-denial, another way of saying it, is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. It is, it is turning away from what God defines as evil. That's repentance. I turn away from what God says is evil. And faith is turning towards what God declares is good. Not what I say is good, what he does. And the Christian life is those steps over and over and over. Repentance and faith, repentance and faith, turning and trusting. When we get to Ephesians chapter 4, Paul spends a whole chapter in the first place he comes, in who you are in Christ, let me tell how to walk, how to live. Repentance and faith, repentance and faith, and self-denial. 
That's what it looks like. To deny myself is giving up also an aspect of this in our, in our following, my own merit, my own control, my own preferences, and in order, uh, my own desire to pursue my own life, my own mission. Jesus directs us, and we do not decide for ourselves where we're going. That's self-denial. He said, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross daily. What does this mean, to take up our cross daily? Well, first of all, I want to tell you what it does not mean. There's a lot of confusion on the idea of taking up our cross, of being cross-bearing. Cross-bearing, you know, people sometimes, will see, you hear people say, maybe this is a generational thing, well, they'll make a comment of some difficulty in their life, and they'll say, well, this is my cross, the cross that I have to bear. Anybody ever hear that? This is the cross I have to bear. It could be chronic illness. They have a a chronic illness that they're dealing with. Well, this is the cross I have to bear. Or maybe there's a rebellious son. They have a rebellious child who is not walking with God, and, and it's tearing their heart apart. So they say, well, this is the cross I have to bear. Or they say, I've made really bad decisions years and years ago, and now I have to live with the consequences, and it's really hard. Well, I guess it's the cross I have to bear. That is not what Jesus is talking about. The other thing Jesus is not talking about in this spring is punishing ourselves. He's not talking about our cross. When we bear a cross, we are not punishing ourselves. We are not trying to pay for the wrongs we do, nor are we trying to appease a mean God because he might get mad at us. That's not cross-bearing. What is cross-bearing then? What, what does he mean by that imagery? And remember, Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. The, the imagery is a very graphic imagery in that culture. Everybody knew what cross-bearing meant. It is the, and we see pictures of Jesus doing it. It is carrying that cross a means of execution publicly so that you can be killed on it. That's what it is. It is is carrying that cross to the place of execution. It's a visible public submission to authority. And in the case of little execution, the government. I'm submitting to the government's rule. I'm guilty. I'm going to die. It's that submission. Jesus is using this imagery to describe what it looks like to follow him. This is where he's going. My followers have the same imagery. Jesus literally took off the cross and was crucified on it. And how does Jesus' cross-bearing inform our cross-bearing? He was willing to suffer and be rejected. That's what it means to be a cross-bearer, to to suffer and be rejected. He submitted himself to the Father's will. Why did Jesus die? Ultimately, Because the Father said, Jesus, I want you to die. Express my love for humanity. I want you to die for their sins. And Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father repeatedly, not just in eternity past, but even in the garden. Hey, is there any other way that this could happen? It would be a good time to pull pull it off. And he says, no, then I'm going to do this. In submission to the Father. We're told in Philippians that he humbled himself and became obedient. He, in humbleness, cross-bearing is humility. It's humility expressing itself in obedience. That's what it means to bear a cross. But it also told us, and the author of Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. 
That's a little paradoxical, isn't it? Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, as he headed for the cross, he knew on the backside of the death, the horrible death and absorbing the wrath of God, was joy. And Jesus endured the cross because he knew of the joy that was there. What does it mean for us to bear our cross? It simply means that we have humility, submission, obedience, and, paradoxically, joy. Joy in doing those things for Christ and with Christ. Now, there's one word in this phrase that drives me more crazy than the rest of it. The cross-bearing, I can work with that. The, the word there that drives me crazy is daily. Anybody else bothered by that word? I wish he had left it out. I could handle this, I don't know about you, but I could handle this more if he had left out that one word daily. Because, see, then I would just make sure, you know what? I just make it a general perspective for my life. I'll make it like a life verse kind of thing. I'll just have this general attitude of cross-bearing. But Jesus, probably anticipating guys like me, inserted the word daily. The cross-bearing is daily. Following Jesus is daily. It's not certain seasons of life. It's not when it's convenient. It's not when I feel like it. It's not just some generic philosophy of life or some orientation of our life. Jesus said daily, each day, every day, day in and day out. We, when we wake up in the morning, part of his understanding of this is if we are to tear our cross daily is we face each day, even Mondays, or whatever day bothers you the most. Even the days we like the most. And we say, we wake up and our ask ourselves, how will I demonstrate humility and submission and obedience and joy today? What will that look like in my life today? Those things. Because that's what cross-bearing is. So therefore, my day should be that. An author, Annie Dillard, wrote a, book, a number of books, but one of her, in her book, The Writing Life, which I read uh, last year, she has a sentence in there that just sort of takes you back. She's well known for her pithy sentences, and one of them is this. She says, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. I think Jesus understood that. Because if we're going to spend our lives following him, we need to spend our days following him. In verse 23, he went through those things. Those are his expectations. In verse 23, he said, those who would come after me must deny them, come after me, must deny themselves, take up his cross and daily and follow me. And then Jesus anticipates objections. He anticipates objections. He anticipated resistance. He anticipated that we wouldn't like this, so therefore, he says, let me give you some explanations. He gives four explanations. The first, the first objection, he said, people say, I'm not sure I'm willing to give up control of my life. I'm not sure, Jesus, with his cross-bearing stuff and his self-denial stuff and his following stuff, I'm not sure I'm willing to give up control of my life. So Jesus responds, verse 24, four 
word for. He's explaining what he just said in verse 23. For, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If you want to control your life, Jesus is saying it will be lost. If you think it's just one of those options that you can opt out of because you're really not into that discipleship following stuff, Jesus say, you'll lose your life. To, to save our life by our own means or through the world's means of acceptance, Jesus is saying clearly here and other places, it really means you lose. To reject the terms of following Jesus is to reject Jesus as our Savior. He's not given us that option. Theodorates directly that clear, we, we already see who Jesus is and what he has done is the person we're following, and that's the cross. And there's a second objection. The second objection is somebody was saying something like, I, I'm not sure I'm willing to give up all the world has to offer me. You know, this self-denial stuff and this pursuing you stuff, I'm not sure I want to give up everything this world has to offer me. And Jesus answers, okay, for what does it profit, verse 25, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Again, the word for, he begins that. He's still explaining. Let me unpack this for you, for those who have trouble with this. And he told other parables. He, Jesus warned about coveting and being engrossed and um, possessed by the worldly possessions. And he, he told a parable of a story of a man who was extremely wealthy. And as his life went on, he got wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. And and the man said, look it, I've got to tear down my barns and build bigger ones because I have so much going for me here, i got to do it. And he said to himself, the, the rich man said, and I'll say to my soul, soul, don't you love guys who recall, talk to their soul? Why does he talk to his soul? Because he thinks he's in control of his soul. He says, soul, uh, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And what things you have prepared, whose will they be? So, Jesus said, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus also had said that you cannot serve two masters. You, can, you, cannot, you will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. You need to pick. So the one who says, I want to hang on to this world and the blessings or the material aspects of this world because I like it so much, fine. But this is it. Someday there's an accountability. And all that stuff will not be yours. It's left behind. Then he goes on to another objection. The third objection, some people would say, you know, I'm not sure I'm willing to give up other people's acceptance of me and their liking me. You know, this radical Jesus stuff, following Jesus, this self-denial cross-bearing, it's kind of offensive in our culture. I'll be a Jesus freak. I'll be a religious fanatic. I really don't need that aggravation. But Jesus says in verse 26, for, again, he's explaining, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Ashamed, notice what you have to be ashamed, could be ashamed of. Jesus himself or his words. Either Jesus himself or his words. I don't like the things you teach, Jesus. I, I'm not going there. Okay. But understand what it means. That someday you'll have to give an account for that. Being ashamed means embarrassed. Fear of disapproval or being ridiculed. Ultimately, being ashamed of Jesus means unbelief. 
and, and we forget that we pursue, and it's part of acceptance and security and significance. It's a part of who we are. We all pursue those things. We all desire to be accepted and to be secure and to be significant. I think that's part of being created in the image of God. The question is, where are you going to get those three things? Jesus is saying in the gospel, if you come to me, I have died for your sins. You are fully accepted. You are fully secure. You are completely significant because you're doing what I've asked you to do. That's where we get it, for eternity. Or we can choose to find that in the world. We can choose to to chase the incessantly and exhaustingly depending on the selfish whims of other people. If they like us today, we're feeling good. If they don't, we're not. Jesus is saying, hey, yeah, you might be a Jesus freak. You might be a radical. But one thing you can be sure of, on the day when I return to my glory, I will not be ashamed of you. I will include you. You will have an experience of acceptance, security, and significance that the world can never offer. And in this thing, the vindication, when he comes in his glory, is the exaltation of Jesus. There's an accountability and judgment. Jesus will be the judge on that day. But here's the other thing we need to know. Jesus is our advocate on that day. When we stand before God, at the, in the, in the, when he, he returns, the reason we're going to stand before God is because Jesus is our advocate. And he's going to say, hey, why, you should, why should you be here? Why should you spend eternity with me? I'm with him. That's the only reason we need, and that's the only reason we have. And Jesus is offering that. You can choose to do it otherwise. And then he gives us a fourth objection. A fourth objection. I'm not sure I have the strength to follow Jesus in this way. Listen, the self-denial stuff, the the cross-bearing, the following, yeah, sounds like a work. Let's just be honest, Jesus. I'm kind of a wimp. I'm, you know, I just have trouble even thinking about that. And then you throw in that daily stuff? Oh, I'm overwhelmed. And Jesus anticipated that. And he says in verse 27, But I tell you truly, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom um, of God. That's a promise. That is a promise. And he's speaking literally to his disciples, but what he speaks to them carries over for us. We can experience in reality, here, now, in our lives, not just eternally in heaven or in the second coming, but we can do it now, the reign of God, the rule of God, the power of Jesus. That kingdom imagery Jesus talked about with his miracles. In fact, the text that follows this is, his, um, is a transfiguration where Jesus goes up in a hill and his body is turned into glorious things. He's given them a taste of what the kingdom is like. And Jesus is saying, this is a present experience, not just a future hope. You can experience the kingdom power now. In fact, you will experience that when you follow me. Paul said in Colossians, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. That's an expression of our self-denial. We are strengthened by his power according to his glory. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Why? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Why can we have endurance? Why can we have strength? Why can we have power? Because we're in Jesus' kingdom. And that's what you get when you're in Jesus' kingdom. This past fall, a number of times, we went to the uh, St. John's Pub to watch football on their movie screen. 
And um, a number of weeks ago, we're sitting there, a bunch of us sitting there watching the game. It's up on the big screen, so it's a little, obviously much bigger than your, your little TV, or our little, our little TV. And you see things you might not normally see. And as we're sitting there watching the game, I realized they zoomed in on the huddle, and I realized that on the back of the helmet, there's a paragraph of text. There's a small paragraph of text on the back of the guy's football helmets. Now, the logos I understand, the American flag I understand, the the pink uh, ribbons, I understand that stuff. But why is there a paragraph of very small, you can't read it, very small text on the back right-hand side of everybody's helmet? Well, I pointed out to Josh. I said, hey, Josh, look at, look, look at that. I wonder what that is. Jock, being the tech-savvy guy that he is, whipped out his phone and within 60 seconds handed me the paragraph. And this is what the paragraph says on the back of football helmets. Warning. Big, bold letters. Keep your head up. Do not butt, ram, spear, or strike an opponent with any part of this helmet or face guard. This is a violation of football rules and may cause you to suffer severe brain and neck injury, including paralysis or death, and possibly injure your opponent. Contact in football may result in bold lettering, concussion, brain injury, which no helmet can prevent. Symptoms include loss of consciousness or memory, dizziness, headache, nausea, or confusion. If you have any symptoms, immediately stop and report them to your coach, trainer, and parents. Do not return to a game or contact until all symptoms are gone and you have received medical clearance. Ignoring this warning may lead to another or more serious or fatal brain injury. And then in all caps and in bold, it says this, No helmet system can protect you from serious brain and or neck injuries, including paralysis or death. This is the the best line of all. To avoid these risks, do not engage in the sport of football. Okay? You want to avoid football injuries? Here's rocket science. Don't play football. Now, is anybody here shocked... Is anybody here shocked that somebody playing either high school, college, or professional football can get injured playing the game, even if they wear a helmet? I I don't think so. I don't think so. But the manufacturer of all the helmets feel a need to put that on the back of the helmet. And yes, there are lawsuits in the high school, college, and pro ranks. You should have told us we were going to get head injuries. And they're suing. This is, should be obvious to us, but you know what? It needs to be said. Jesus has small print. He has warnings. It's something that, you know, shouldn't need to be said, but Jesus felt the need to say it. In verses 57 through 62, Jesus gives three warnings. We should know better But he felt the need to tell us of what it means to be a follower of Christ. First warning, there is a price. There is a price. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, 
birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This would-be follower, I mean, anybody, any one of us would be excited to get this kind of guy. I will follow you wherever you go. It's open-ended, total commitment. Wherever you send me, Jesus, I'll go and I'll do it. And Jesus said, you know what? There's something you need to understand. If you follow me, this is what your life will look like. This would-be follower is ready to charge forward, but Jesus was telling him, you know what? You need to be aware that you need to leave some things behind. I'm the creator of the universe. I created the foxes and the birds, and they have more than I do. I willingly set that aside to be on mission, to do what the Father told me to do. Are, are you willing, as my follower, to do the same? There, there's a price to pay. Jesus is saying explicitly, clearly, comfort and convenience are not descriptors of following Jesus. Comfort and convenience are not descriptors of following Jesus. And if we're going to follow Jesus wherever he takes us, we have to expect to be treated the way Jesus was treated. Following Jesus includes sacrifice, inconvenience, difficulty, public stands and social that are socially unpopular, and even persecution. You said, oh, you can make this big commitment, but let me explain what this is going to cost you. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you're in the world and the world loved you as its own, but because you are not in the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you. I'm telling you this ahead of time. Warning. Remember that the servant is not greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus is saying to be a follower of Christ, his follower, there's a price. The second warning, he said, there are priorities. There are priorities. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, uh, let the, let, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury the, their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He, in this particular case, he doesn't wait for the guy to volunteer. He invites him. Hey, you, you come follow me. A personal invite by Jesus himself. But notice that the guy decided to make set conditions. Notice it says in there, oh, first, let me go do this. Oh, I'll follow you, Jesus. Oh, that'd be awesome. We'll be, we'll be buddies, okay? But first, I'm going to do some things that I want to get done. He sets the condition for following. He says, let me go bury my father. Uh, whether I, I don't, th- there's no explicit detail what that means. Other than a family obligation or social expectations. I don't think the father was already dead. Because if he was, he'd be burying him. He wouldn't be talking to Jesus. I think the man's father could be older, could be sick, whatever. Basically, the guy is saying, someday... When things are just right with the family and the old man's kicked off and I have that inheritance, then I'll consider following you. And Jesus said, no, let the dead bury the dead. And what does he mean by that kind of statement? What does the dead bury the dead? He's saying that there are some things that anybody can do. In our culture, in our lives, there's things that anybody can do, but only followers of him can go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Don't mix those two things up. The priority is this. We, we try to come up with our conditions that, well, I'll follow you when 
this happens. I'll follow you if this happens. I'll follow you after that event in my life. And Jesus is saying, no, no. The first thing you need to concern yourself, the priority of your life, if you're following me, is going and declaring the kingdom, declaring, sharing the gospel. Don't let the urgent tasks of this life distract you from the important tasks of proclaiming the message of eternal life, is what Jesus is saying. But as for you, go and declare the kingdom. The first, uh, this comes first, and then we backfill other life's responsibilities. Jesus deals with the third warning. The third warning. He says this requires not only uh, a price and, and um, what was it? Priorities. <laughs> but this requires perseverance. This requires perseverance. This following Jesus stuff is hard. He says, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first go say well to those in my family. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, this man is setting his conditions for following Jesus. He's doing it again. I'll follow you on my terms, when I'm ready, when I'm okay letting go of all the other things in my life, when, I, when I've resolved all those things, then I'll turn my attention to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, you, you, you can't stop and look back. You can't hang on to all the other priorities of your life and all the other values of life and then get around to following Christ later. It's like Israel, when we look to Israel in the past, it's just amazing to us, but it's very poignant. They, he, God dramatically rescues them from their slavery and pain and suffering in Egypt. It's very graphic. And they get into the desert, they start going in, they aren't into it very long, and what was their theme? You remember their theme? We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. Really? You, you want to go back to pain and suffering and slavery instead of going to the promised land? It requires perseverance to move forward. And Jesus wants his followers to have that perseverance. It requires that. Eugene Peterson calls discipleship, or this, he calls it, a long obedience in the same direction. I think that's a great description. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Jesus told his followers, there is a price, there are priorities, and this requires perseverance. What does it, what do you have to know in order to follow Jesus? Well, we touched on something that Jesus said specifically about this question in Luke chapter 9. To, to follow, be a follower of Jesus, you need to be clear who Jesus is, why Jesus came, how Jesus came, what Jesus expects, and also be clear about Jesus' warnings. To be clear about Jesus' warnings. That's the fifth one there. As we go today and we, we respond, this is the beginning of what it means to follow Christ. We're going to be unpacking this for the rest of the year. Unpacking what does it mean to be a follower of Christ in our day and age. But to begin with, like I said at the beginning, we begin primarily at those first two points. Who Jesus is and why Jesus came. On the communion tables, as we take communion, I'm going to invite you, if you are a Christian, if you have responded to the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and have responded to that in repentance and faith, you consider yourself a follower of Christ, then I encourage you to come to take communion and worship him in that way. And on there are the verses 22 and 23, which describe the verses in this passage that describe who Jesus is 
and why he came. And he's also why he is calling us to himself of the self-denial, cross-bearing, and following him. I ask that, excuse me, I ask that when you come up that you would think for, and pray just for a short time. Read those verses to yourself, your family, whatever, whoever goes up with you, and think about the call of Christ on your life to be his follower. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you always, always, always for your generosity. And Lord, sometimes these messages of, of, of calling and um, what it means to follow you can be um, intimidating. It can be overwhelming for some people. It can, it can feel like a legalism of, I got to perform. I pray, Lord, that we would not result that way. We would not respond that way. That, Lord, we would be free to accept and be aware of the generosity of your love to us. That we, in Christ, are accepted. That we are secure. And that we are significant. And may we go, as the, as we, not go, but as we praise and sing and worship you now, may those truths be uh, in our heart. And Lord, as we face what it means to be a follower of Christ, may we follow you and you're even heading to the cross for the joy set before us. May we embrace being your followers. In your name, amen.